1: Again, Maine removes Donald Trump from the GOP primary. Now he faces two legal challenges to his 2024 campaign. What this means for the election as the Supreme Court faces another hugely consequential case.
2: Plus damage control on the campaign trail. Nikki Haley now says, of course the civil war was about slavery. Where she's calling the question that set off the controversy a setup. Plus, breaking overnight, Russia launches what Ukraine calls the largest aerial assault since the war began. The east, the west, the capital all hit. Nearly a dozen people are dead. Ukraine renewing its calls now for international help. CNN This Morning starts right now.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. It is the last Friday of 2023. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill in New York. Poppy is off today and Maine has become the second state to throw Donald Trump off the primary ballot. Just like Colorado, Maine's secretary of state has decided Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6th and is therefore disqualified under the Constitution. Here's what she told CNN after the big announcement.
3: January 6 was an attack not only on the Capitol, on government officials, Uh, but also an attack on the rule of law, that it was an insurrection, and that the US Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government. And that main election law and the Constitution required, indeed obligated me to act.
2: Trump's attorneys vowing to fight that
3: decision. And we're now looking, of course,
2: at yet another historic legal battle that could land in the Supreme Court and could have massive implications for the presidential election. We're also expecting a court ruling soon in Oregon where there is another major lawsuit to disqualify the former president. Also new this morning, just hours after that decision in Maine, California's top election official announced Trump will be on that state's ballot.
1: We start off this morning with CNN's Kalen Polans, who is tracking all of this somehow, some way at this point, especially, Kalen, when you look at the map and where different states have gone and what they've decided over the course of the last couple of weeks, what they could decide going forward, where does this legal battle actually go from here?
4: Well, Phil and Erica, 2024 is going to be complicated at very least, specifically regarding whether Donald Trump can be on the ballot in primary elections because of this constitutional clause that bars insurrectionists from being voted for or holding office. As of now, as of last night, we have this second major decision out of a state saying, no, Donald Trump cannot be eligible to hold office because of his role related to January 6th. So first, Colorado's support Uh, Colorado's court system decided that. And then yesterday after uh, essentially hearing from voters looking at evidence, the main secretary of state made a very similar decision deemed Trump to be both someone who engaged in the insurrection of January 6th and also decided that she had the ability as the secretary of state, the responsibility even, to choose and to determine that he was not eligible to be on primary ballots in 2024 in that presidential election. Uh, Maine is going to be voting on Super Tuesday, just like Colorado. Here is a little bit more of the explanation from Shanna Bellows last night speaking on CNN.
3: The oath I swore to uphold the Constitution comes first and foremost. The textual analysis of the Constitution and the facts laid before me at the hearing that I was obligated to hold under main law brought me to this decision.
4: Trump's team, of course, was not happy with this decision. They very quickly came out and called her a leftist. She is a Democrat. She's elected. uh, And that they said that, anyone who is making these sorts of choices to keep Trump off the ballot, whether it's a court or a secretary of state, that they are engaging in partisan election interference. Trump's team also vowed to go to the state courts, and that is where this goes next. So the secretary of state did make this determination after looking at this as a case, almost as a legal case, though she's not uh, the justice system, From this, from this decision that she made, it can go to the Maine court system. It looks like the courts in Maine will have to make a decision by the end of January. And, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court, we're going to wait and see what they do related to Colorado and the law everywhere on this.
1: All right, Caitlin Poulence, 2024 is going to be complicated, according to Caitlin Poulence, put a pin in that, because 2023 was so zen. It was and was so chill, so and so sin, was 2022 yes. and 2021. Kaylin, you've got a lot more reporting on other issues. We're going to get back to you soon. Uh, thank you very much.
2: Let's dig into this one a little bit more with CNN political analyst Natasha Alford, CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig and CNN political commentator Errol Lewis. Good to see all of you this morning as we move into complicated territory here. Um, when, I, when we look at this decision in Maine and what What could come out of it? How much, Ellie, do you think this actually increases the pressure on the Supreme Court to take up Colorado?
5: Well, I think it takes it from likely to virtually certain now that the Supreme Court will take up this case because if we look at the map, the actual physical map of the United States, now we have two states as it currently stands, and this seemingly is changing every few hours, but we have two states, Colorado and Maine, that have said Donald Trump is out. He is off our ballot. When voters go to the ballot boxes, In November, there's going to be one major party name. It's going to be Joe Biden, and the Republican side, if Donald Trump's the nominee, will be blank. However, a dozen and a half or so other states, when you look at various legal challenges, challenges in the courts, state and federal, challenges to secretaries of state, a dozen to a dozen and a half other states have said, no, he's on. We're rejecting this. And this is part of, I think, the chaos that people feared when it came to wheeling out the 14th Amendment. And what we're seeing now, and it's not necessarily legally wrong, which for reasons we can get into, but what we're seeing now is different states reaching different conclusions through different procedures for different reasons. And that's where we need the Supreme Court to come in and give us some uniformity to all of this. Natasha, to to
1: Ellie's point, it's not necessarily legally wrong. And I think what you're alluding to here is the politics of and how people react and the patchwork kind of all converging into one is to some degree dangerous or could be dangerous. Uh, And I think that's what you hear from even some Democrats who are opposed to this, Mm -hmm. saying, man, if there's going to be a way, we should either beat them in the ballot box or there's a bunch of criminal cases, focus on that, not this.
6: Right. I was really struck by Governor Gavin Newsom's response to this, right, because this could have been a slam dunk. You you think a Democratic governor, you know, this is a Democratic-leaning state. And yet, he, even he is saying, we let people make this decision. We don't make this decision for them. So it's a slam dunk for the Trump team's narrative if you get more Democratic-led states that go along with this decision.
2: And we are here, I and mean, we even heard from a couple of Republicans saying, I can't believe I'm agreeing with Gavin Newsom on this. But you see them <laughs> saying, hey, I agree with Gavin Newsom on this. The clock is ticking here, Errol, and that is really what everybody's looking at. As we wait to see if the Supreme Court is going to take this up. Maine has, as Caitlin just pointed out, until the end of the month. I mean, what potentially happens if this is not resolved in
7: time? Well, look, first of all, the Supreme Court is going to have to move, and they're going to have to move quickly. And we saw that they can and will do so. We saw that in 2000 when, you know, there was a mm-hmm. lot on the line and they, you know, they kind of stay up late, work on the weekend, uh, get their paperwork done. Um, um, but the, the the chaos could be quite serious, like, and, and, you know, spread out among these states that have reached all of these different conclusions. Some states have really tended toward the conclusion that, well, we are not going to keep him off the ballot, but we're not clear as to whether or not he'd be eligible to serve, meaning they want to kick the can down the road. That's why the Supreme Court has got to sort of really get their hands around this, because there could simply just be chaos. That they're, There will be questions about whether or not uh, uh, Super Tuesday or any of the other different primaries and caucuses are legitimate. Mm -hmm. It will start to uh, affect turnout. There will then be a secondary wave of uh, of lawsuits uh, around all of that, people feeling like they've been disenfranchised. This is the level of chaos that we have a Supreme Court to prevent.
1: Ellie, to that point, uh, my assumption had been, well, the Supreme Court's going to weigh in and kind of solve all the problems, give all the answers. The scope of what the Supreme Court does is not... We don't know exactly what it's gonna be, and it could leave some openings, particularly
5: in a general election. It's a great point. The Supreme Court is not going to just wave a magic wand and say, okay, all 50 states, here's how each of you have to do it. They can only consider the actual disputes before them. Now, fortunately, the main decision yesterday is specifically based on the Colorado decision. It mentions, it says, the Secretary of State writes, well, I'm basing this largely on what just happened in Colorado. And she says in the opinion, if Colorado gets struck down, we're going to get struck down, too. So I think the Supreme Court can, has to start with those cases. And I think if they do strike down or uphold what's happened in Colorado and Maine, that will definitely give some guidance. We have no guidance here. It's important to notice, right? We've never had this kind of challenge. It's never played itself out in the courts. So at a minimum, if the Supreme Court takes this case and rules, it won't answer every question, but it'll give us something.
2: Real quickly to that point, you yeah. said last night that you're, you're not convinced the Supreme Court would actually take up the question of whether or not Trump engaged in an insurrection. That's one of the big yeah. questions, right, is how do we quantify this right. under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment if he hasn't been charged criminally, criminally or convicted? Yeah. Can they really not take up that part of it? Because that, to me, sows even further chaos.
5: They cannot take up the question of whether he engaged in insurrection, and I think they will not take up the question of whether he engaged in insurrection if and when the Supreme Court takes this. It will be about procedure and due process. Was he given fair procedures under the state law? Is it even up to these states and secretaries of state to decide this in the first place or does it have to come from Congress? I don't think any way the Supreme Court touches the insurrectionist question. It'll be based on due process. Complicated.
8: 2024.
2: Complicated. What a Let's go. Uh, <laughs> but Thank you, guys. Stick with us.
5: Well, Republican presidential hopeful Chris
1: Christie will join us later on CNN this morning to discuss this ruling and a whole lot more from a very, very busy 24 hours on the campaign trail. And later, Secretary of State of Maine, Shanna Bellows, will join us live to explain why she made this decision and what she thinks of the fallout from it.
2: We also have seen an exclusive reporting this morning inside the Trump campaign's plot to overturn the 2020 election. Recordings and emails revealing just how close they were to pulling off that fake
1: elector scheme. And dozens of people run for their lives as huge waves pound the California coast. The damage, these waves are, look at it, it's wild. What it's doing and the new danger today, We'll, we'll get into it, stay with us.
2: An exclusive report this morning, CNN has obtained recordings and emails that show just how far the Trump campaign went to try to
1: overturn the 2020 election. Pro-Trump attorney Ken Chesbrough, who's being investigated in several states, spoke with Michigan prosecutors recently. That interview reveals the last-minute scramble on the eve of January 6 to get fake ballot certificates to Washington, D.C., in time for then-Vice President Mike Pence to use them the next day.
2: CNN's Caitlin Polant is back with us. So, Caitlin, um, we've heard some of that interview— how did Chesbro explain though this chain of events leading up to January 6?
4: Well, Erica, Ken Chesbro essentially described it as a scramble where people who were higher up than he was were involved, including people who, at least by name, had the title uh, of lawyers for the Trump campaign that had an affiliation with the Trump campaign. But this whole story, as we were looking into this, as we were listening to audio, as we saw emails, as we were talking to sources, it really just highlighted how uh, there were such lengths, such steps taken to get those fake elector ballots into the hands of Mike Pence so that potentially Trump's electors could be used to help him overturn the election. We've talked so much about these fake elector certificates. We had all really thought that they were just mailed, but what Ken Chesbro spoke to prosecutors about in Michigan is that he spoke about how these things got stuck in the mail, or there was a belief that they were lost in the mail, or they were stuck in a sorting facility. They weren't going to get to the Capitol on time to be used for Trump's behalf, and so Someone asks on an email chain with Ken Chesbro, somebody affiliated with the campaign also working with him, can we charter a flight? That's at 11 p.m. on January 4th. They're right up against the deadline of January 6th. Ultimately, uh, the elector certificates from Wisconsin and Michigan are ferried by humans on commercial flights to get to D.C. Uh, they are kept, uh, they're delivered to people at the Trump Hotel, and then they are also placed into the hands of people working with members of Congress to get them to Pence, because you can't just get them there. Here's a little bit more from Ken Chesbro on how he described this episode.
9: This is like yeah. So this is a high-level decision to get the Michigan and and Wisconsin votes there. To and they they had to enlist a uh, you know a a U.S. senator to to try to expedite it to get it uh, get it to uh, uh, Pence in time.
4: So one thing Chesbro is highlighting there is essentially this split tension in the campaign, uh, this pointing of fingers among people who were working on this. Whose call was it? Whose responsibility was it uh, that led to this level of scramble?
1: The the details, Caitlin, in the story are, are wild and sure just how comprehensive if scramble like the effort was. Why are we learning this much now?
4: We're learning this much now because Ken Chesbro, this attorney who was working for Trump, he wasn't talking before. He took the fifth whenever he testified to the House Select Committee previously. But after he was charged with a crime in Fulton County, Georgia, he then pleaded guilty and started talking. He talked to prosecutors there. He talked to prosecutors in other states, including in Michigan. We were able to obtain this audio as well as some emails that really had not been out there before among him and people with campaign email addresses at the very last minute before January 6th. Big question remains on how much the special counsel's office, the federal investigation, the case against Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., how much this factors into it. We do think prosecutors know a little bit about this because they hinted in their indictment of Trump that they recognized that these Michigan-Wisconsin certificates, that they didn't arrive by mail. They came some other way.
1: All right, Caitlin Paulins, the story is is excellent and very detailed. Read it on CNN.com. Appreciate it.
2: Let's bring back in now CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honing. Ellie, as we look at all of this, as Caitlin said, uh, it would appear that the special counsel is aware uh, of the scramble. Taking into account this new reporting, what does this do? What is the impact on Donald Trump?
5: So great reporting, first of all, and I was riveted when I read it. I was reading it with a prosecutor's eye. Kenneth Chesbrough is a mixed bag for prosecutors, and I guess, therefore, for Donald Trump. And mixed bags aren't great when you're a prosecutor and you bear the burden of proving your case, not by 51%, but beyond a reasonable doubt, to a unanimous jury. Here's why. Chesbrough has clearly been valuable to prosecutors because he's giving them details, all the details that Caitlin just laid out. It gives life to the allegations. How exactly did these ballots make their way from Minnesota or Wisconsin to Washington, D.C. That's important for prosecutors to know it gives them leads. But this is important. Kenneth Chesbrough will never take the stand. He will never be called to the stand by a prosecutor, by Fonnie Willis or Jack Smith. And here's why. A line from our reporting, a crucial line from Caitlin's reporting, I'll read it verbatim. Chesbrough has maintained then and now that the plan, the fake elector Mm -hmm. plan, was a lawful move to preserve Trump's legal rights. If he says that, and that apparently is his view, he's poison to prosecutors. He will be what we call a Brady witness, meaning a witness that's actually helpful to the defense based on an old case called Brady. Uh, So he's useful investigatively. But anyone who thinks he's going to be the next John Dean or the smoking gun witness, absolutely not. Mark my words, no prosecutor will call him to stand defendants. They call him to the stand. John Dean told me last night he doesn't think Jack Smith needs him. Listen, there is (laughs) is no other John Dean. Take it from John Dean himself. There's only been one. The
1: other most interesting thing for me in the reporting was going through the emails and seeing who was on Mm -hmm. the email, who was responding, who was deeply involved, but also the lawmakers involved. We knew Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, and Scott Perry, the the congressman from Pennsylvania, had roles. But listen to what Chesborough says uh, that we obtained in the reporting.
9: So he finds Representative Perry, whoever is in Pennsylvania, and who gets a staffer to agree to meet us at like 3.45 p.m. And so, um, and I don't know why, why we did, did that. But so Mike Brown, you know, I, I had the Wisconsin stuff, Mike Brown had the Michigan stuff. We walked to the Longworth office building, and the guy with Perry, or whatever his name is, and some other fellow uh, that were like uh, staff members of the, uh, of, of the, uh, in the house, uh, took them and said we're going to walk them over to the Senate and give it to a Senate staffer. Well, I guess it was a Senate staffer for Johnson, and so that's how. I don't know why logistically we didn't take it directly to Johnson, uh, but that's how we, we we did it.
1: I mean, my guess is because they can't get into the Capitol building uh, as non-staffers or members, but. When you look at kind of that chain and who was involved as a prosecutor, what
5: does it tell you? So this fills in one of the bigger unknowns of the whole question for me, which is just how involved were these members of Congress? We've known, we've seen some of them politically get out there and espouse false election fraud theories. But how much were they involved in the actual execution of this? And I think this is where somebody like Kenneth Chesbrough can be valuable, again, on an investigative level. Scott Perry. Scott Perry is really in the middle of a lot of this. Again, not just in a political way, but in an execution way. I mean, here we have Scott Perry integrally involved in getting these fake ballots into the Capitol. Earlier, we learned that Scott Perry was involved in the scheme to try to take over DOJ and install this loyalist Jeffrey Clark. Now, Scott Perry's not been charged with anything. He's not even listed as one of the co-conspirators. I wonder if some of that is because of his status as a member of Congress. Maybe they don't want to deal with some of the special privileges Members of Congress have, but boy, he is right in the middle of this whole thing. And one thing you can do as a prosecutor with Chesbro's information, all of that is fair game. You can go talk to all these other people, bring them in, subpoena them, force them to the stand. So he's useful. Again, I just want to stress this, Chesbro, but he's not gonna be the smoking gun witness.
2: Great. Ellie, appreciate it as always. Thank you.
5: Well, 30-foot waves pummel
1: California's coast and flood beach towns. You're going to see how close some people came to disaster and how long it's expected to last.
2: Plus, Wall Street could close out 2023 with quite the bang. The records markets just made set today.
4: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: This is so wild. California's coast now bracing for waves of 30 feet or more after large swells like this pounded the coastline. In fact, one wave briefly swept some 20 people away, briefly, yesterday. This happened in Ventura County, northwest of L.A., no one was seriously hurt, but they did have to run to escape.
1: And these waves are triggering flooding as well, damaging businesses near the beaches and even triggering some, evac- some evacuations. CNN's Derek Van Dam has been tracking all of this and how long these dangerous conditions are going to last. Derek, what do we think
10: here? Wow, Phil, you know, I have seen rogue waves with my own eyes. They are dangerous and they can catch people off guard. Just like what happened in Ventura County yesterday. So what exactly is a rogue wave? Remember, we have ocean swell that moves across the ocean at all times, but sometimes we get that conjoining with a large low pressure system that creates strong surface winds. So that strong winds will create large waves on the surface of the ocean, but that's working in opposite with that ocean swell that traverses across the Pacific Ocean and in this instance, and what it does is it quickly actually uh, shortens the wavelength. Remember, that's the difference between the wave peak and trough and it creates a larger than normal wave or a rogue wave that can crash upon the shoreline taking people off guard and can be extremely dangerous and lethal in some instances. Here's the low pressure system responsible for the oncoming surge. There was also a swell that was working in conjunction with this. We have another round of large waves that are anticipated today right through Friday morning. That is why we have these high surf warnings and advisories dotting the entire California coastline In fact, this could cause some coastal flooding concerns and dangerous rip currents. Bottom line here, Phil and Erica, you need to stay out of the water. Mm -hmm. It is extremely dangerous to be an onlooker to see what's happening along the coastline because these waves can catch you off guard in a moment's notice. Pay attention to the
1: warnings. Derek Van Dam, thank you. Well, all eyes will be on the forecast and on Times Square Sunday night as we count down to 2024. This year, there are concerns that the Israel-Hamas war will inspire a lone wolf attack.
2: CNN's John Miller takes us inside the security preparations, happening right now.
8: New Year's Eve in New York City. Security, always tight, has been increased this year. While officials stress there is no specific reporting regarding any threats, a joint threat assessment based on analysis from 10 law enforcement agencies, warns, the Israel-Hamas conflict has created a heightened threat environment. Therefore, the intelligence community remains concerned about lone offenders using online platforms to express threats of violence against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab communities, as well as committing simple, unsophisticated attacks that are difficult to detect in advance. The assessment obtained by CNN reminds police that massive live televised events remain an attractive target for foreign terrorist organizations, as well as domestic violent extremists. It's a threat stream that will be monitored minute to minute leading up to midnight New Year's Eve in multiple command posts. From the NYPD's Joint Operations Center to its Intelligence Bureau to the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, gathered in an operations center in lower Manhattan. October 7th was something of a flashpoint. Um, the uh, horrific attacks on Israel
11: and the ongoing war and conflict that's happening right now uh, is, is, is,
8: is certainly motivating and inspiring people to do uh, bad things. Last year, a 19-year-old man from Maine traveled to Times Square with an attack plan that investigators believe was inspired by online ISIS propaganda. New York City police say Trevor Bickford was shot by officers after he attacked three of them with a machete at a Times Square New Year's security checkpoint. Bickford has pleaded not guilty and is awaiting trial. The security package Not just crowd control and traffic, but what they call the counter-terrorism overlay includes a network of cameras, NYPD counter-sniper teams and skyscrapers above, bomb detection canines moving around the perimeter, dogs that can pick up the whiff of explosives even moving through a crowd 100 feet away, radiation detectors worn by police on the street, and an especially equipped NYPD helicopter high above. Police are also focused on potential demonstrations. The war between Israel and Hamas has brought on protests in New York and clashes with police. When some protesters announced their intent to disrupt the lighting of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, the live televised event in Times Square is another potential target for disruption. We know what their tactics are. We're going to make some adjustments to so our tactics. Uh, no one's getting to that ball. I can put it to that way. But protests, and even disorder, is not what keeps the NYPD or the FBI up at night. Terrorism is. And while the officials say there is no specific credible threat on their radar, this year they are doing more than ever, they say, to ensure that. John Miller, CNN, New York.
2: And our thanks to John Miller for that report. Well, Nikki Haley doing a little damage control on the campaign trail after saying, after not saying, rather, that slavery caused the Civil War. Uh, Now she has some new explanations for those comments.
1: And more from the decision in Maine to kick Donald Trump off the presidential ballot. The Republican former lawmaker who is part of the bipartisan group that filed the challenge joins us live. Stay with us.
3: I mean, I think
12: the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run. The freedoms and what
13: people could and couldn't do. In the year
14: 2023, it's astonishing to me that you
5: answer that question without mentioning the word slavery.
13: What
3: do you want me to say about slavery? Of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned, always the case. We know the Civil War was about slavery. But it was also more than that. It was about the freedoms of every individual. It was about the role of government.
1: Nah, man, it was was about slavery i um, pretty sure that's the case. However, it was obviously a different answer 24 hours apart. That was Nikki Haley doing some damage control after her initial answer to what caused the Civil War did not include the word slavery. The Republican presidential candidate says it was so obvious that slavery was caused by the Civil War. It didn't need to be said out loud, but she adds the entire exchange was actually a setup by Democrats.
4: I'm from the South. Of course, you know,
2: it's about slavery.
12: I guess if you grow up in the South, it's a given that it's about slavery. It was definitely a Democrat plant. Whether it was or not,
2: there was still an answer to the question. And that's what the issue is, not the question. It was an easy question. Back with us now, Natasha Alford, Errol Lewis, and joining us, CNN's Jessica Dean. Um, there was a lot made of this yesterday. We saw Nikki Haley doing cleanup all day yesterday. Um... I was struck a South Carolina state senator who was actually with DeSantis at an event yesterday, had this to say about Nikki Haley. Take a listen.
7: Because if you get Nikki Haley, you're going to get a lot of political spin. And I say that as a South Carolinian, I have nothing personal against her. Uh, I, it's not a personal thing for me. She's a nice lady for her, depending on which version you meet. Ouch, Errol. I
2: mean, how much how much damage, right, 24-plus um, hours later?
7: You know, she's only done damage in the sense that Nikki Haley was supposed to be, for the Republican Party, uh, she, she stumbled into a problem to which she was supposed to be the solution, right? Republican strategists, we talk to them all the time in D.C. What keeps them up at night is that this is a party that's 80-plus percent non-Hispanic white in a country that's becoming more and more diverse literally every day. And Nikki Haley was supposed to be the answer to that. A woman uh, for a party that's not doing well with women, suburban, educated, person of color. Uh, And she stumbles all over this and sort of makes them remember that they've still got this existential problem, that they keep losing the popular vote, that they're not doing well with women. They're not doing well in communities of color. They cannot afford to keep writing off and getting blown out in Atlanta and Philadelphia and all of these different communities. And so she's supposed to have some fluency with this. That's what she was supposed to bring to the race. And here she is sort of spouting South Carolina talking points, pretending that the whole thing never happened, getting it wrong. And, you know, frankly, not even being a good, you know, sort of uh, well, leader of her party. The Republican Party is founded as an anti-slavery party. In a few months, we're going to see their 170th anniversary. It is a really, really important turning point in the history of the country and to sort of just try and whitewash it and pretend and use these kind of euphemisms as if, oh, the civil war was about small government or something crazy like that. Again, she was supposed to be the answer to that. And it doesn't sound like she's necessarily ready for that assignment.
1: I I, want to build on that. We we got into this a little bit yesterday because the language that was used, including what she said in the cleanup yesterday after saying, of course, it was about slavery, but it was also about Mm -hmm. that is not, that's loaded language. Like, I'm sorry, like, it is. It is lost cause, revisionary history of things. It is why there are monuments that were built after the Civil War, after the Reconstruction, to Confederate generals. It's why there are military bases named after Confederate generals, really bad Confederate generals, by the way, Braxton Bragg. And when you use that language, if you're aware of any of this stuff, it's not simple. It's not, oh, there was also this. You keep saying, we're from the South, of course there's about slavery. The South is where all of this happened.
6: It is what happens when you are a chameleon, right? You are trying to blend in with whatever crowd is in front of you and say what is appeasing to them rather than standing on your principles and taking whatever heat comes with that. And I think voters were watching this moment and they were saying, you know, if they were undecided, we don't respect that, right? either you know, be a Donald Trump, be outrageous, say how you feel, or be a DeSantis, say that you are anti-CRT, but don't try to sort of play both sides. And so you lose when you do that. Uh, and people can't trust you. They can't trust that you are a leader uh, rather than a follower. And so for her, again, like Errol said, this should have been basic. This, this should have been something that she could have answered easily. And because she did it, I think we have to ask, why is it so toxic just to state basic history right now? Why are we afraid to state the facts? So it's, it's such a it's such a great question of why have we become afraid
2: to, I mean, look at Florida, right? Why have we been afraid to teach accurate history in this country? But it's also, if you look at Nikki Haley's history, I know our colleagues at K-File did some digging. They found her comments from 2010. She also had comments in 2019 in her book that she wrote. She was referencing removing that flag, right, in 2015 after the horrific killing at the Mother Emanuel Church. And she says in that book, that in 2019, she was calling it, she calls the, again, lost cause language here, the flag is a symbol of heritage and service and it's tradition. In 2023, as a woman from the South, a woman of color, to keep going back to that, maybe it does mean tradition and service, but you know what it means to a lot of people, it is a symbol of slavery and a stain on this country. She can't bring herself to say it, it's always both sides. That is the thing, I was thinking about this yesterday,
15: after I left you guys, then it continued throughout the day. We did the reporting. We followed along as she first did the radio interview. Then she talked about it in the town hall. She did not take reporter questions on it. I think that is important to note. Mm -hmm. And it just don't, you know, I just sat with it. The fact she, to your point, cannot just say out loud, it was about slavery. It's just say the obvious thing that is the truth. And to me, that's insulting to voters, right? They can take it. They can take it. They, I, it's a fact. And to kind of try to, like, wobble around this thing is such a strange uh, hill to die on, in a way. And and so you look ahead to, okay, what does that mean now? It, it's it, People, to your point, just can't—what can you trust if she can't just call it out and tell you what she thinks? And look, Donald Trump, people don't—there are—listen, people have very strong opinions on what he has to say. But— I think that people do react strongly to him because they like that he just says things out loud. And mm-hmm. you can hate what he says, but he's he's not trying to, like, waffle around the edges of things.
2: Yeah,
6: he, doesn't and really, that's appealing, he doesn't care whether people. you like it or not. Right. right. It, it. That is appealing to
15: people, and I think we have to remember that.
6: And I would just say there are voters who are in denial, right, that the Civil War was about slavery, but we don't need to cater to those right. voters. We need to stand on what the facts are. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right. Jess, Errol, Natasha, thanks, guys. Yeah. Appreciate it.
2: The battle at the border pitting Democrats against Democrats. Three mayors whose cities are taking in migrants are pleading for help from President Biden. This morning, those mayors of New York, Chicago, and Denver will join us together live in the 8 o'clock hour.
1: And breaking overnight, Ukraine is hit by what it calls the biggest air attack since the start of the war. Civilian targets hit as calls grow for more help from the West. Stay with us. Welcome back. Wall Street could end 2023 on a record high when trading opens for the final day of the year. The S&P 500 could hit that record today. It ended up yesterday and it's on its longest winning streak in two decades. The Dow could also close at a record high after finishing slightly up yesterday. Analysts say optimism is rising that the Federal Reserve can successfully cool inflation in 2024.
2: So this surprised a lot of us. Poison control centers this year have said they're really seeing a major spike in calls because of get this, people eating dangerous wild mushrooms, and the spike comes as interest in foraging has grown as a way to connect with nature and live a more sustainable life. CNN's Meg Terrell has more.
16: I saw the mushrooms over
9: here.
17: Last September, Bill Hickman found what he thought were edible mushrooms growing near his house in Wyndham, Ohio.
9: I look down and I put my phone on it, and it says, boom, it's a giant puffball. I'm like, oh, cool. So I
16: put my stuff down over there and gathered a few up.
17: But the app on his phone was wrong. Eight hours after eating the mushrooms, Bill got violently sick.
7: You know, I, I just didn't think I was going to live.
17: It turns out Bill had eaten four of what are known as destroying angel mushrooms, a highly toxic species.
9: The first doctor pretty much told us we, we can't help him, you know, that he's, he's not going to survive.
17: Warmer fall weather due to climate change is extending mushroom season. Nationally, reports of potentially toxic mushroom exposures are up more than 11 percent so far this year compared to last. To see just how diverse and potentially dangerous mushrooms can be, we went foraging with mycology instructor Rick Vanderpoel in New Hampshire.
14: This one has what they call a classic farinaceous odor, so it's an odor of meal or farina.
17: He uses smells, colors, and structural features to help determine which mushrooms are safe to eat.
14: So these are puff balls. Open it up and show you that what the middle wow. looks like. Wow, like a right? marshmallow. Yeah, exactly. They often call these the marshmallow mushrooms. Hmm. Um, and interestingly, they, in a soup, will soak up the fluid and the taste so you can actually use these as little miniature sort of mushroom sponges.
17: And which ones are not? Where would you look for the, some of the ones that are poisonous?
14: Let's go take a look.
17: Okay. So oh wow, that was orange.
14: You can touch it, smell it. So that has the farinaceous odor. Mm-hmm. So that if you got it's that. Subtle. So what will that do if you eat it? Uh, that'll make you sick. Mm. Yeah, gastric
17: upset, won't kill you. But some can be deadly. So okay. that's it?
14: So this is it. It doesn't look like much, it's this little brown mushroom. Hmm. And you know, you pick it off the log. So this is our deadly galerina, gallerina marginata.
17: What would happen and if you ate eat one of those?
14: So this has amatoxins in it.
17: That's a poison that destroys liver cells and can cause liver failure. Amatoxin was also in the mushroom's Bill Hickman ate. With his liver and kidneys at risk of failing, Bill was transferred to University Hospital in Cleveland, where doctors raced to get him an experimental antidote, an extract from the milk thistle plant called solibonin. The antidote worked. Bill slowly regained his strength, but says it took months to fully recover, both physically
9: and mentally. There are a lot of people involved to make it happen to save me.
17: Meg Terrell, CNN, Wyndham, Ohio.
1: Thanks to Meg for that story. Quite the story indeed. In just a few minutes, Chris Christie's gonna join CNN this morning live. We're gonna ask him why he's saying this about Nikki Haley's Civil War comments.
18: I know her well, and I don't believe Nikki has a racist bone in her body. But for purposes of this race, the reason she did it is just as bad, if not worse. Get everybody concerned about her candidacy.
4: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
12: The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events.
19: At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
12: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Breaking overnight, Russia launching its biggest air attack on Ukraine since the start of its full-scale invasion nearly two years ago. Ukrainian officials say Russia fired an unprecedented number of missiles and drones across the country, killing at
1: least 20 people. The attack struck civilian infrastructure, causing power outages. Ukraine says the attacks show it needs the world's support after Congress went home without approving more aid. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, this was a widespread attack that hit targets in just about
20: every corner of the country. What happened here? Yeah, and you've hit the, the rationale of why this is so important, of course, uh, right on the head. Russia looks for weaknesses in Ukraine's coalition of allies, be it the United States not coming up with money or the European Union right before Christmas going on break without coming up with the 55 billion uh, euros over four years that they were that they were planning to give to Ukraine. Um, so the strikes here uh, in the west of the country, Lviv, nine people injured there. Kyiv, at least one person killed, 18 wounded there. Um, further north, uh, east in the country, Kharkiv there, uh, people killed there in uh, Dnipro, further south in the country. A maternity hospital hit there. Five people killed, 15 wounded. In that city, Odessa, two killed, 15 wounded. And the numbers go on. But look, you know, when you try to analyze what is Russia trying to do here, um, it's number one trying to create fear and panic in Ukraine. This was 158 different missiles, 114 of them Ukraine took down. But Russia looks for opportunity here. And the Ukrainians describe this as wave after wave. So the Russians launched 36 drones, which the Ukrainians were able to shoot a number of those down. That was not out of the ordinary. Then that was followed up by Russia launching launching 18 strategic bombers. They they fired a total of 90 cruise missiles. Five long-range or eight long-range bombers were launched. They fired eight cruise missiles as well. Five MiG aircraft fired. uh, Five hypersonic missiles. Surface to air missiles were used. Anti- Radar missiles were used. So it was the full gamut of the high explosive ordnance, the highly accurate high explosive ordnance that Russia has at its, uh, at its military fingertips, if you will. And this is why President Zelensky is saying that the Russians have used pretty much everything that they had. And the foreign minister in Ukraine is accusing Russia of targeting women and children.
1: Yeah, a, a very unsettling scale. Nick, appreciate the reporting. Thank you.
20: Unseen in this
2: morning continues right now.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill in New York. Poppy is off today, and Donald Trump is off a ballot. Again, removed from a state's primary ballot, this time in Maine. Ahead, we're gonna hear from the top election official on how she came to that decision.
2: Nikki Haley now says, of course the Civil War was about slavery. That's, of course, after the backlash. She's gonna be back in front of New Hampshire voters this morning, and so will Chris Christie. We're gonna ask him about Haley's flub, her attempts to clean it up, and also the calls for him to drop out of the race. In the Middle East this morning, a new concern about Iran and its proxies, the latest attacks that have world leaders warning of a larger conflict in the region. Cena this morning starts right now.
1: First Colorado, now Maine, throwing Donald Trump off the ballot. Just like Colorado, Maine's top election official deciding Trump engaged in an insurrection and is therefore disqualified under the Constitution.
3: January 6th was an attack not only on the Capitol, on government officials, uh, but also an attack on the rule of law, that it was an insurrection and that the U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government. And the main election law and the Constitution required indeed obligated me to act.
2: Trump's attorneys are vowing to fight that decision. It could seriously ramp up the pressure as well on the Supreme Court to take up that historic case in Colorado. We are also expecting a court ruling soon in Oregon where a major lawsuit is looking to disqualify Trump for the same reason.
1: Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Let's start by taking a step back because yeah. this has gotten a lot of momentum in the last couple of weeks after previously being kind of like an op-ed thing <laughs> that people would talk about.
5: Um, the 14th Amendment, what, what exactly are we talking about? Here? And, and it's a great point, Phil. If people are at home feeling uncertain or confused about how quickly this is all unfolding and where it's going— You're not alone, because this is new territory, legally, constitutionally, but there are some important things we do know that may guide us. Let's start, as you said, with the 14th Amendment itself. Section 3 tells us that no person shall hold any office who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. That's actually the easy part of the 14th Amendment. It gets a little more complicated when it comes to how does this work? You jump ahead to Section 5. The 14th Amendment tells us Congress, meaning federal Congress, U.S. Congress, shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. I should say this was passed, ratified in 1868 after the Civil War. The two big questions that we have here, to boil it down, who decides, does it have to be the U.S. Congress passing laws? And the only law they've passed in the wake of this is a criminal law saying anyone who engages in insurrection commits a crime and is barred from holding office. Who decides, though, the federal Congress or the states— And if the states, what process, what do they have to do before reaching a decision that somebody has engaged in insurrection? Those are the two questions to keep in mind. Who decides and by what process?
1: And so when you look at what happened with Maine, And the secretary of state, which is a different process,
5: I think, than we saw in Colorado. What do we know? So if we look at what secretaries of state are doing 24 hours ago, this is what the map looked like. We had five different secretaries of state who had said either formally or informally, I do not have the power to throw someone off the ballot. That changed last night when the secretary of state of Maine, who you have on the show later, said, I am throwing him off the ballot. And then hours after that, the secretary of state in California said, I don't have the power to throw him off the ballot. Now, they're all interpreting their own state laws, so it's not impossible that you have differential results. Some of the higher-profile secretaries of state who have said, no, not my power, Jocelyn Benson, we see her on air sometimes, from Michigan, she's become quite a well-known Democrat. Brad Raffensperger, who's a witness to all of this, maybe a victim to all this, in Georgia has said, I don't have that power. But the secretary of state in Maine said, under my laws in Maine, I do have the power. She found that Trump engaged in insurrection, based on a hearing that had some evidence that would never come in in court. She looked at documents. They had one live witness, a law professor. She looked at documents. Some of it, I think, would never come in in court, but it's not necessarily a court hearing. She said, I find he engaged in insurrection, and therefore, he's removed from the ballot. So we end up with this map where you see different secretaries of state doing different things in different states.
1: And that is not sustainable heading into 2024. At least I don't think it can be. So what happens next?
5: Yeah, so we also have legal challenges happening all across the country. And again, the map gets even messier there. We have these states have rejected efforts to throw Trump off the ballot at various stages of either secretaries of state. Some of these are in courts. Uh, In other states, there have been legal challenges that were pulled back, that were withdrawn by challengers, those are the yellow states, about 13 of them. And now we have two states where Trump's off the ballot for the time being. As to what comes next, we have Maine and Colorado now there alone. By the way, their rulings are based on the same basic legal premise. We can decide as states, and under our state procedures, we find he committed insurrection, and he's out. It's headed for the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, there's almost no way around that. I thought it was very likely after Colorado. I think it's almost certain after Maine. We need some level of uniformity. Again, going back to those two questions— who decides this? Is it up to the U.S. Congress or the states or both? And if so, what do the processes have to be? The reason the US Supreme Court is here to deal with heavy constitutional issues like this and to give us some sense of uniformity so it's not so chaotic.
1: Trump has not appealed in Maine, right yet. Right. Or sorry, in Colorado or Maine. Colorado yet. The Republican yep. Party has in Colorado. Do we have any sense of when he would appeal? And how fast is the Supreme Court going to decide here? Because things are moving right now in 2024.
5: So we do actually have a sense because Colorado, in its ruling from its state Supreme Court, said we're going to put everything on hold until January 4th. So I think Trump's team will file an appeal on Colorado by January 4th. Maine is going to be wrapped up on that. How quick will the U.S. Supreme Court rule? The rule with the Supreme Court is they rule as fast or slow as they want. They have to be real here. They have to recognize time is of the essence. We can't stay in this chaotic, uncertain state.
1: It's like the U.S. Senate. They can be fast when they want to. If everyone to agrees. Then. We'll have to see. Allie Honeg, a lot going on. Thanks, Thanks man. So.
2: Well, in a statement after that decision from Maine's Secretary of State, the bipartisan group of former lawmakers who filed the challenge said she, quote, stood on the side of democracy and our Constitution in her decision to bar former President Donald Trump from Maine's ballot. Joining me now, one of those Maine lawmakers, Republican former state senator Tom Saviello. Good to have you with us this morning. Um, We just you know, referenced part of that statement that you had put out with the other former lawmakers. In response, Maine's current Senate Republican leader, perhaps unsurprisingly, disagrees, telling the Portland Press Herald this decision, in his words, undermines democracy and saying Maine voters deserve a primary process that allows for each party to decide its own candidates. How do you respond to that?
19: Well, I think you have to look at what, thanks first for having me on. First, you have to look at what Maine state law says. The Secretary of State has to determine whether the individual meets the qualifications or not before they can be on the ballot. And in this particular case, thank you, Shenna. Thank you, uh, Secretary of State. You made the decision that Donald Trump does not meet those qualifications because, according to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, he was involved in inciting an insurrection against this country and egged those people on to do what they wanted to do to the Capitol. And therefore, she's made the decision that he is not qualified to be on our ballot. That's the difference. Um, and she made that in a very thoughtful manner. She ran a wonderful hearing. Whether we won or lost, she really listened to what everybody had to say and made that ultimate decision yesterday.
2: Do you have any concerns? And this is the criticism that we've heard, frankly, from people on both sides of the aisle, that it takes away the ability of main voters to have their voices heard when you hear that somebody's criticism- not
19: qualified. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, if somebody's not qualified, they shouldn't be on the ballot. The second thing, if they want to write his name in, at the end of the day, go ahead. But a fact is the man incited a riot on January 6th. That's what brought me to the table. And when I read the Colorado decision that basically said he did create that insurrection and mm-hmm. Senate, uh, Repre- uh, Se- Secretary of State Bellows said the same thing, mm-hmm. that needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, I voted for Trump.
2: Last week, ahead of that decision, you told um, CNN, ahead of the Maine decision, rather, that you felt the Colorado ruling would help the case in Maine. It was referenced by the secretary of state. How much of a factor do you think Colorado was in this ultimate decision?
19: I think it was significant. I think it it gave... Us, the defense that we needed or the information we needed to make our arguments in front of the secretary of state. And it also gave the the, uh, secretary of state the opportunity to make a decision that she wasn't going to be all by herself. I, I don't know if that played or not in her decision, but I think she was I know her very well personally. She made a very thoughtful decision. She spent time doing that. She gave time for the record to be opened back up again to look at what the Colorado Supreme Court said. I think she did this in a thoughtful and the right manner
2: um, as our, I'm not sure if you just heard it or not. But just before um, one of our senior legal analysts, Ellie Honig, was on who's a former federal prosecutor. And he noted that some of the evidence in this hearing was evidence that would never have appeared in court. This is evidence uh, that the secretary of state used in her decision. Are you concerned at all as this moves through the appeals process about how that could come into play?
19: Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a forester, so I really can't tell you what evidence is allowed and what evidence is not allowed. I think the case was made. She made the decision based on what she had in front of us. On both sides, she actually took some of the evidence out as she felt it was more hearsay and made the ultimate decision that what she had there in front of her was helping her make her decision.
2: Um, as you know, all eyes now are really turned to the Supreme Court of the United States. Do you believe that they'll take up this Colorado case?
19: I hope so. I mean, I said this when I was on the show last week with you guys, the ultimate decision lies with the court, with the, with the law court, the main U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that's what the decision is. And note that uh, uh, Secretary of State Bellows stayed her own decision until the courts make a final decision.
2: As we're waiting on that, I do also want to get your take. Um, the Trump legal team obviously had been asking for the secretary of state to recuse herself. She did not do that. Putting on your political hat for a moment. Does that in any way, in your view, undermine this decision, this ruling?
19: No, because if you're gonna attack anything, don't attack that. Senator Bellows took an oath of office to protect the constitution. That's just what she did when she made this decision. This this young woman is a a very thoughtful and thorough person. So don't attack her partisanship, the fact that she's a Democrat. Don't attack that, attack what the, the opinion was. That's what it should be about.
2: When you look at this, Given the makeup of the Supreme Court, what is your gut on what could happen?
19: Uh, You know, that's a really good question. I think uh, 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 Justice uh, Thomas needs to recuse himself. And I think one of the justices actually made a similar finding in another court case that was before him before. So does he change that decision? I think it's going to be very interesting in front of the Supreme Court.
2: So you want Justice Thomas to recuse himself?
19: Uh, Senator uh, uh, Justice Thomas, yes. I think that all the stuff that's come out about him and his wife on January 6th, he needs to recuse himself.
2: But, but again, just going back to the, quest, the the criticism that came from the Trump team when it comes to the Secretary of State, Bellows, who was asked to recuse herself because of comments she made after January 6th about the former president. That, in your mind, is not grounds for her to remove herself.
19: It is not, because what, what did they think January 6th was OK for, a, for him to go on and egg the people on? That's what they're defending. And I think that's ridiculous.
2: Tom Saviel, really appreciate you coming back and joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Me too. Uh, just ahead here in our 8 o'clock hour, we're going to speak with the official who made that decision to remove Donald Trump from the ballot in Maine. Secretary of State, Shana will join us.
1: In just a few hours, Nikki Haley will be back in front of New Hampshire voters after her answer on what caused the civil war provoked a lot of backlash over 24 hours. Next, Chris Christie, who's also in New Hampshire this morning, will join us live What he makes of his opponent's comments. And what's next in the primary?
2: Plus, a new report detailing the failures in Israel's mission to rescue three hostages accidentally killed by the IDF. Those new details ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
3: Of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned, always the case. We know the Civil War was about slavery. But it was also more than that. It was about the freedoms of every
9: individual.
3: It was about the role of government.
1: That, of course, was Nikki Haley trying to clean up and clarify her comments in New Hampshire about the start of the Civil War. A voter called her out for failing to say that slavery caused it. Today, she will finish campaigning in New Hampshire. Governor Chris Christie is also in New Hampshire today. Big battle in that state. Here's what he had to say about the Civil War comments.
18: If someone asked me what the cause of the Civil War was, (laughs) it's easy it's slavery.
1: And we bring in 2024 GOP presidential candidate, former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie. We appreciate your time, governor. In terms of, we played uh, your response, uh, Nikki Haley's comments as well. I, I wanna play a little bit more of what uh, Governor Haley said yesterday. Take a listen. I'm from the South, of course you know it's about slavery.
12: I guess if you uh, grow up in the South, it's a given that it's about slavery. It was definitely a Democrat plant.
1: Governor, you've been through your share of New Hampshire town halls, (laughs) a lot of them, in fact. Uh, What did you make uh, of the efforts to clean up yesterday?
18: Um, Pretty poor, Phil. And look, here's the here's the bottom line on this. Nikki Haley, as I defended her in the fourth debate, as you'll remember, is a smart woman, and she knows better. Um, Look. She's been having this problem for decades in terms of her answer about this. If you go back to her running for governor in 2010, she said that the Civil War was about change versus tradition. She called slavery a tradition. And change versus tradition. It's not change versus tradition, Phil. It's right versus wrong. And our entire party was founded on the idea of the abolition of slavery. And, you know, let's stop with the, you know, with the comments about, well, I'm from the South, so you know that. Well, then she should have said that and known that the first reason given in the secession notice from the South Carolina government at the time the Civil War began was because the North opposed the expansion of slavery to the Western territories. Now, Nikki knows all that, and she's not saying it because she's she's afraid to say it because this has been her whole campaign. She does not want to offend anyone. She won't tell the truth about Donald Trump. Even though she knows that he was the cause of January 6th, she won't say it. Even though she knows that he regularly lies, she won't say it. And even last night, Phil, she was asked by a voter again in New Hampshire, would she categorically rule out being Donald Trump's vice president? And she won't answer the question. These are simple questions to a smart woman. And when she doesn't answer them, you have to believe she's being a slippery, slick politician who wants to be everything to everybody. And it's too late in this game to do that.
1: Governor, she was, uh, Governor Haley was asked last night uh, by somebody who's weighing the two of you uh, who to vote for in New Hampshire, which I think is a, is a, not an insignificant amount of people in New Hampshire right now. Um, and And I want you to listen to what she responded. Take a listen.
3: is obsessed with Trump. I mean, God bless him. He's a friend. He's obsessed with Trump. He sleeps, eats, and breathes it every day. I'm thinking bigger
18: than that. How do you respond to that? Yeah. if, If you call it being evasive and on both sides of an issue bigger, then I guess she is being bigger than that. I mean, look, it's pretty simple here. Donald Trump has been leading in the polls in this race by... 20, 25 points for months, and she won't talk about him. She says he was the right president at the right time. She says that for some reason, chaos and drama follow him wherever he goes. You know, Phil, that's like the arsonist saying, you know, for some reason, burning buildings follow me wherever I go. This is a guy who sets these fires, divides this country, lies to us on a regular basis, um, and is under four criminal indictments. And Nikki Haley calls him the right president at the right time and won't preclude being his vice president. Look, this is the important thing for people out there who don't want more of Donald Trump. She's willing to be his running mate. And until she says he isn't, she isn't willing to do that, then we must assume she is, that she's protecting this. And look, if she's wondering about how to answer these questions in New Hampshire, I'm sure Governor Sununu will explain it to her. And hopefully he will, over the course of the next 24 hours for her sake. But right now, I think New Hampshire is seeing the slippery, slick Nikki Haley who won't answer questions definitively, won't say whether she's willing to be his vice president, won't say whether Donald Trump is unfit to be president, won't say whether slavery is the cause of the Civil War definitively. Um, these are the kind of things that are done to try to protect certain constituencies, Phil. I mean, the fact of the matter is she won't bring up slavery because she's, you know, nervous about offending anybody who believes there was another cause for the Civil War.
1: She also said, Governor, that she would be willing to pardon former President Trump if it came to that and she was in office. Do you agree with that?
18: No. No. I don't. And I've said that definitively, that I would not pardon Donald Trump because, Phil, he, you know, one of the, you know, and she should know this and be honest about it from when she was a governor. One of the requirements to issue someone a pardon is for them to take responsibility for their actions. Do we ever see Donald Trump being willing to take responsibility for his actions on anything? And the fact is, this is another one of her resume items to be Donald Trump's vice president. By the way, Mr. President, wink, wink, you know, I would pardon you. Uh, Look, this is the worst type of cynical politics where you try to play both sides to the middle. Um, And look, Nikki has a history of doing this in her career. I was hoping it would be different in this campaign than it had been in her campaigns for governor of South Carolina, but it obviously isn't. And now the people in New Hampshire, through this town hall process that you talked about, where, and I love the idea about a democratic plant, Phil, Guess who's going to be a Democratic plant in November? Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries. They're all going to be coming after the Republican nominee. And if she can't answer and won't answer questions like that from a regular citizen in a town hall, um, how is she going to do up on the stage against Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or any of the other Democrats will be coming after the Republican nominee next November?
1: Governor, it's been very striking that this all comes... Literally at the same exact time as you just dropped a new ad by, which has a message that I think tracks quite uh, well, I think, from your campaign's perspective, uh, in terms of your direct-to-camera ad making very clear that you're unequivocal, specifically about Trump issues. My question is, do you feel like this is an opening for you, that things are lining up at the right time in New Hampshire?
18: Look, we're just going to keep working hard, Phil. You know, I, I, uh, I, I'm not a political pundit. I'm a candidate for president of the United States. But what I will say is I think it shows two different candidates. A candidate who is willing, like me, to tell the truth no matter the ramifications, no matter whether somebody gets upset with you or gets booed, because guess what? When you're president of the United States, if you can't stand up and say the truth to a voter in New Hampshire, how are you going to tell the truth to Vladimir Putin or President Xi? And Nikki has shown an unwillingness to do that because she's unwilling to offend. She is unwilling to tell the truth to people when they need to hear it. America needs to hear the truth about Donald Trump. I'm the only candidate in this race who has been willing to do it out loud. And let me tell you, Phil, you know this is true. They all say it in private. They all say it in private. I'm the one who's saying it in public. And if that turns out to be an advantageous contrast for me with voters in New Hampshire, then that just means they're rewarding the truth.
1: Last night, we saw Maine join Colorado, the second state, to kick the former president off the ballot. I know you've said this should be decided at the polls. Uh, Are you concerned that this actually ends up having the opposite effect of boosting Trump in the race as you try and take him down?
18: Sure, I definitely am, because it makes him a martyr. You know, he, he's very good at playing poor me, poor me. He's always complaining. The poor billionaire from New York who's spending everybody else's money to pay his legal fees. Poor me. But when stuff like this happens, um, you know, this should be decided by the voters of the United States. It should not be decided by courts. Um, and the fact is that while there may be um, people may think there's some justification for doing this, it's not good for our democracy in the end. Donald Trump should be defeated by the voters at the polls and defeated by someone like me who's willing to tell the truth about him. That's the way we defeat him. And we end the scourge of Donald Trump in our party and in our country. Phil, I got into this race to tell the truth because I'm fighting not only for the soul of my party, but for soul of this country. And we don't need someone who sends out a Christmas message who says anyone who disagrees with him should rot in hell. That's what he said after his Thanksgiving message, where he said he was thankful for all the people he hated. This is not the kind of person we need behind the desk in the Oval Office, someone who hates, someone who tells people to rot in hell. And I think if we say this enough, and by the way, if Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy and the other candidates who have since dropped out had not raised their hands at the August debate and said, I'll support him, even if he's a convicted felon and enabled him. We probably would have had him down in the polls, maybe out of this race, if all of us had told the truth. But I don't care that I'm the only one. I've got to keep doing it. It is a
1: busy couple weeks ahead, certainly in New Hampshire, but across the primary structure. Governor Chris Christie, we appreciate your time, sir, as always. Thank you.
18: Phil, thanks for the time this morning and Happy New Year. Likewise.
2: Well, speaking of busy, today's expected to be the busiest travel day of the holiday season. If you're headed to the airport, you may just want to pause a minute. We're gonna tell you just how packed it could be there. So many friends waiting for you. Plus, surveillance video shows a massive wave sweeping away a group of people. This happened in California. Now, thankfully, we can't tell you no one was hurt, but this is not the end of these waves where more big waves are headed. Live look for you at LAX in Los Angeles. You know, that's a fair amount of traffic at 4.30 a.m. Pacific time. Why? Well, today is expected to be one of the busiest days at airports nationwide. Americans returning home, or maybe, you know what? Maybe they're going off on a really fabulous trip for the new year. Could be that, too.
1: Your enthusiasm for this part of the show is I'm living for it. Maybe because I'm jealous
2: and I wish I was traveling somewhere, but I'm
1: not. I think it's because you know who's next.
2: Okay, you're right. Guilty. I do love Pete Muntean, as Pete Muntean knows, (laughs) live at his real home, not his home away from home, his real home, which is Reagan National Airport outside (laughs) Washington. Um, Okay, busy day coming up here. Pete, give me the goods.
21: Erica, you have it exactly right. It is the folks returning home after Christmas, and the folks leaving town for the New Year's holiday. That's what makes these numbers really big. Look at the line earlier here, the 7 a.m. rush here at Reagan National Airport. The good news is right now people are getting through security relatively quickly, although the TSA tells us today is going to be one of the biggest days of the holiday rush. 2.6 million people expected at airports nationwide. The FAA air traffic controllers anticipating handling 48 1,000 flights last Friday and this Monday and Tuesday were really big. They will rival today's numbers. But what's interesting about those numbers is that they're only 5% off from the all-time air travel record we saw this Sunday after this past Thanksgiving. I want you to look now at the cancellations and delays. Over about the last week, airlines have operated about 187,000 flights. They have delayed about 36,000 of them. And that number, according to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, he says it's a little high based on what we have seen in the past, but the cancellations have remained relatively low. We're talking only 1% of all flights canceled over the last week. We're talking 1,300 flights in total. I spoke to FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker about this. He says the agency is prepared and airlines are prepared and they are in constant communication.
22: Well, we're very prepared. We've been through it before. Uh, we have a command center in Virginia that really looks at the entire system, where there's potentially weather, where there are delays. We communicate with the airlines and, and make sure we're running as smoothly as possible.
21: Of course, a lot of people are going to be driving in this last weekend of the holiday rush, and AAA says the worst times to go are today between two. And 8 p.m. That is when many major metro areas, including here in D.C., could see traffic twice the norm. It's the mix of people leaving and coming for the holiday, but also combined with the normal traffic, because not everybody
1: has this week off, Erica, Bill. Yeah, that is true. Not everybody uh, has it off. He makes makes a great point there, since we're sitting at work right now, and so (laughs) so is Pete. Although that is his home. Pete, can I ask you a quick personal probing question? Oh, Sure. Yeah. Are you a a clear guy or a pre-check guy?
2: Oh, this is good. Uh,
21: (laughs) Good question. I'm a pre-check guy, although I did go to the West Coast over the holidays. uh, And it has me sort of questioning my choices. It seems like these clear folks get through much quicker. Although I have to say, and sometimes uh, the standard line at some airports is now faster then yeah. the pre-check and clear line, and that was exactly my
1: experience when I was flying on Tuesday.
2: I think it's always—I have both full disclosure. It is yeah. always a game-time decision.
1: I, it's a game time. You need to be—you need to be agile, and I feel like people aren't. They're all <laughs> s- locked in.
2: I switched. But lines I also recently.
1: feel like we could have lots of conversations <laughs> about this because I have deep thoughts, and now I feel like I'm more informed because Pete and Jack Handy's with out of us this <laughs> morning. <laughs> Pete Montine, we love you, buddy. Thank you.
2: Uh, breaking overnight, Ukraine hit by what it calls the biggest air attack since the war started. Civilian targets hit, calls it growing for help from the West. This morning, Ukraine says Russia launched its biggest air assault since the war began, killing at least 18 people. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying that Russia used nearly every type of weapon cruise missiles, drones, strategic bombers. The attacks hit the east, the west, Kyiv, and targeted civilian infrastructure, including apartment buildings and a maternity hospital. Ukraine says the attacks show it needs the world's support. The U.S. ambassador to Ukraine today renewed that call for additional military aid. The State Department this week announced an aid package of $250 million. Congress, of course, though, did go home for the holiday break without reaching a deal on more funding.
1: Also new this morning, we're learning more about an Israeli military report on those three hostages who were accidentally killed earlier this month by IDF soldiers. In the report, the Army chief said the troops failed in their mission to rescue the three men and that, quote, it could have been prevented. The report also concluded that military command did have information about hostage presence in the area, but troops were not aware they could or would be approached.
2: Israel's military, meantime, says that Hezbollah has continued to launch rockets from southern Lebanon at Israel as the threat of more violence rises. Benny Gantz, who's a member of Israel's war cabinet, saying, quote, if the world and the Lebanese government do not act to cease the fire aimed at northern communities and push Hezbollah away from the border, the IDF will do so. Joining us now, the former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations, Hagar Shemali, and also former commanding officer of the USS Cole, Kirk Lippold. It's good to have both of you with us. And, Commander, if I could begin with you, Benny Gantz also said this week that the time is running out to reach any sort of a diplomatic solution between Israel and Hezbollah. There, is so, there are so many eyes, rather, watching what is playing out along that northern border. How concerned are you this morning about an expanding war in the Middle East?
23: I think you may see an expanding war only because Hezbollah is very much entrenched into Lebanon. They have been there for literally decades. They are in the government, they are throughout society, and they have had the opportunity over that time period to build up military forces to watch how the israelis operate in the northern border area and so consequently they are well prepared to begin to attack israel from the north and target all the way to the southern end of the country they have weapons that can reach that far and they know exactly what they would want to aim for to try and disrupt israel capability so while israel may rely on the lebanese government to try and get them back Hezbollah is going to drive their own agenda at the behest of Iran to do whatever it takes to prevent Israel from destroying Hamas. Hagar, so
1: much of what we've seen from the Biden administration since October 7th, or since Israel has launched uh, its counteroffensive to the terror attacks, has been to prevent exactly what we're talking about right now. What can the administration do to try and maintain keeping this just a Hamas-Israel conflict?
13: Right, Phil, as you said, one of their number one priorities is to prevent this from expanding into a broader regional war, which is why they beefed up their military assets in the Mediterranean, in the Red Sea and in the Gulf. And so now what you're seeing is the U.S. also strike back those Iran-backed militant groups in Iraq specifically and in Syria to sit, to push back on them when they have struck U.S. bases. In my own opinion, they could be more forceful in those responses because those militant groups are not going to launch a big war. They are unable to. They don't have the capacity to beat the United States at this war. And so the U.S. does have room there in an effort to prevent something wider scale to pursue more forceful attacks in a message that these militants understand. These militants only understand the language of military engagement. And so if you respond more forcefully, but not to the point of igniting a massive war with Iran, which I don't think will happen, then it sends this message of you're not allowed to do these types of attacks or strikes because we're going to come for you too on behalf of Israel or in defense of preventing a destabilized Middle East. I was struck by as well this
2: week um, what we saw, Iran's Revolutionary Guard, now saying that the Hamas terror attack of October 7th was actually revenge for the U.S. killing of Soleimani in 2020. Hamas immediately denied that claim. But the timing, nearly three months after the terror attacks, what what do you make of that timing? Not to mention the discrepancy here and Hamas coming out right away and saying, no, 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 this was a terror attack. We were worried about other things in Israel. Not about that.
13: Yeah, they're really grasping for straws here. Now when 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 Qasem Soleimani was assassinated by, by President Trump um and the Trump administration, uh Iran quickly came out and said we're going to we're going to take revenge and you're going to see uh we're going to vindicate you know for the for the killing of this of this uh of this leader and and Qasem Soleimani killing him was a big deal. And uh, and we saw nothing after that. We saw certainly attempts. There were attempts to assassinate the US ambassador in South Africa. There have been attempts to assassinate Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, and other uh former senior leaders of of the, of the Trump administration, but they haven't been able to carry anything out. And now you've had uh, the assassination of another major leader of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria, which Israel has neither confirmed nor denied. And that leader in Syria is the, is the guy in charge of arming Hezbollah and sending missiles to Hezbollah. And so that might be why Iran wanted to come out and say, hey, you know what, this is, this is by the way, this is in revenge of, of Qasem Soleimani's death and maybe they feel the need to, to make up for it, given the, the assassination of this new leader, but the fact is that, first of all, Hamas is coming out denying that, but it doesn't look, we already knew that this was not an attack that was deeply executed by Iran. They, their support of Hamas made that attack possible, but Iran is not the one that made this happen.
1: Commander Libel, before we let you guys go, what we've seen in Ukraine, obviously a, a different war, but uh, no less uh, complicated in the moment in time, particularly as US, uh, the U.S. Congress has left without being able to approve more aid for Ukraine. What does that tell you, the scale of the Russian attacks overnight that we saw in Ukraine?
23: I think what you're seeing Russia do is try to set the groundwork for what they're going to do during what they're going to have as a winter offensive. They're going to continue to push Ukraine. As you can see, they're already targeting the civilian infrastructure that is going to try and make life miserable for the Ukrainian people. Once again, Russia's demonstrating they have no respect for international law in the targeting that they are doing. Similar to Hamas, they do not care about the conventions that are out there that prohibit targeting civilians, civilian infrastructure, But nonetheless, Russia is trying to make sure that they put the conditions into place that may drive Ukraine to have to come to the bargaining table if the United States, in a leadership role, doesn't work with our European partners to ensure that Ukraine gets the weapons they need at the time they need it to do what they need to do to not only defend against Russian attacks, but also push Russia back to the pre-war borders, including Crimea. Kirk Hagar,
1: we appreciate it as always. Thank you.
2: Gypsy Rose, sorry, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, the woman who had admitted to helping her boyfriend kill her abusive mother, has just been released from prison. Just ahead, we take a look back at the lies that launched this case into the spotlight. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Gypsy Rose Blanchard on parole this morning. That's after serving eight years in prison for admitting to helping her boyfriend kill her mother. Now, until her arrest, she was believed to be suffering from a number of serious health issues.
1: That was until investigators uncovered the abuse she experienced at the hands of her mother. CNN's Gary Tuckman has more.
22: Gypsy Rose Blanchard, a little girl whose mother, Dee Dee, was known as a loving, caring single parent of a profoundly disabled child.
14: It's Mayberry. We're moving to Mayberry. <laughs> I remember
0: my mom had gave me this little glass house, and she said, "This one day this will be real. And now it finally is.
22: Gypsy and her mother had just moved into a Habitat for Humanity home in Missouri after their house was devastated in 2005 by Hurricane Katrina. It appeared to be a feel-good story for this child whose mother said she had brain damage, leukemia, asthma, muscular dystrophy, and was not able to walk. But it was all a lie. Dee Dee Blanchard had fabricated it all. Gypsy was victimized by her mother's apparent Munchausen syndrome by proxy, in which a guardian causes or exaggerates illnesses. Gypsy never went past second grade.
0: It just proves that happy endings are not just in fairy tales. They're real and true in real life also
22: the elaborate scheme that Dee Dee concocted did indeed get her sympathy, like at this charity function. In our darkest hour. (laughs)
16: Thank
15: you, Dee Dee. And always
6: said, you're the reason I was born to be your mom. State of Wisconsin versus Gypsy Blanchard.
22: But then, in 2015, Gypsy and a long-distance boyfriend were charged with murdering Dee Dee. Gypsy told Nicholas Godijan about the lifetime of abuse she endured. They came up with a plan to kill her mother. And Godijan was accused of stabbing her to death in their Missouri home. Police reportedly found out about the killing from this violent post on a Facebook page that Gypsy shared with her mother.
14: Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?
12: Yes,
14: sir. Would you state your name for the record, please?
12: Gypsy Blanchard.
14: And how old are you? I'm...
12: 25 at
22: 24. Gypsy's boyfriend was found guilty and is serving a life sentence.
14: Yeah, never it, it was
22: Prosecutors felt Gypsy needed to be held accountable. But because of the abuse she experienced, they agreed to a plea bargain.
14: She's to be sentenced to 10 years in the Missouri Department of Corrections.
22: While in prison, Gypsy talked with TV personality Dr. Phil about how her mother lied to doctors and how her mother handled her medical appointments. She
14: told me that I couldn't speak during a doctor's appointment. She would tell me, you know, sit in the wheelchair, play with your Barbie dolls, and let me talk and don't interrupt. My mother told the doctors that I was mentally incompetent.
22: Gypsy also said her mother tried to convince her how helpless she was.
14: She would always use the medical term for everything that was wrong, that I had microcephaly, which is small head that my brain didn't develop right, and I'll never mature
13: past a six-year-old's level.
22: After she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, Gypsy was told this.
14: She'll have to do 85% of her sentence before she's
22: eligible for uh, parole. And today, that 85% is now over. Gypsy Rose got married while behind bars to a Louisiana school teacher, a relationship that reportedly began as pen pals. She is now free to be with him, to live as normal a life as possible, while she and we remember the things she was once forced to say, like this about her new house.
14: It's beautiful, and it's happy, and it's full of love.
22: Gary Tuckman, CNN, New York.
2: Just ahead here in our 8 o'clock hour, a one-on-one with the election official who removed Donald Trump from Maine's 2024 ballot.
3: Secretary of State Shana Bellis will join us. The U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government. And the main election law and the Constitution required indeed obligated me to act. These are decisions that are part of my obligations and part of my duty. And that is what I am compelled to do by the Constitution.
22: Compelled
1: by the Constitution, Maine has removed Donald Trump from the GOP primary. Now he faces two legal challenges to his 2024 campaign. What that means for this election as the Supreme Court faces another consequential case.
2: Plus, breaking overnight, Russia launching what Ukraine calls the largest aerial assault since the war began. The East, the West, the capital, all hit. Uh, nearly a dozen people are killed. Ukraine also renewing this morning its calls for international help.
1: And the battle at the border is pitting Democrats against Democrats. Local leaders across the country stepping up their pleas for more federal help over the wave of migrants seeking asylum. The mayors of some of America's biggest and bluest cities join us this hour. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. And this morning, the pressure is mounting for the Supreme Court to step in after Maine joined Colorado in throwing Donald Trump off the ballot. Just like the Colorado Supreme Court, Maine's top election official deciding Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6th and should be disqualified under the Constitution.
3: It is unprecedented. No secretary of state has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on section three of the 14th Amendment. But no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection.
2: Trump's attorneys are vowing to appeal. We're also waiting to see if the Supreme Court will, in fact, take up that historic ruling in Colorado, which, of course, could have an impact in Maine. And we're keeping a close watch on Oregon. A decision there could be coming soon in another major lawsuit, also trying to disqualify Trump on the same grounds.
1: We start off this morning with CNN's Caitlin Polence, who's tracking it all for us. Caitlin, the obvious question, what happens next?
4: Well, Phil, Erica, it's very possible the courts will be springing into action here because now we have two states, Maine and Colorado, deciding that Donald Trump is not eligible to be on their primary election ballots. That's much different than a lot of other states, including states like California and Michigan this week that decided, no, we're not going to remove him from the ballot. This decision yesterday in Maine came from the Secretary of State, Chennabello's. Bellows. Here's a little bit about why she she believes she was able to do this
3: the oath i swore uphold the constitution comes first and foremost the textual analysis of the constitution and the facts laid before me at the hearing that i was obligated to hold under main law brought me to this decision
4: now, Shana Bell is the Secretary of State in Maine. She did find that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection that January 6th, 2021, that riot at the Capitol was an insurrection, and that it was her responsibility to determine that Trump was not qualified to be a candidate on the ballot there in Maine. Uh, but there is the possibility of a lot of chaos and a lot of questions, which is why the courts are very likely to be involved here. So Trump in Maine is likely to go to the state courts to ask them to figure it out by the end of January. January, if Shanna Bellows is right here, that he can be removed. And then also in Colorado, that other state that is removing him from the ballot after a court decision there, that is
2: now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Legal 2024 coming in hot. A lot going on there. Um, Caitlin, I do want to ask you as well about this exclusive new reporting uh, that you and your colleagues have showing this really this frantic rush by the Trump team in the days leading up to January 6th. All of this hinging on Kenneth Chesbrough, who, of course, was the architect of that fake elector scheme. What more have you learned here? Yeah, Ken Chesbro
4: is a lawyer who wasn't talking. We didn't hear his story until now. What happened was he was very close-lipped about exactly what happened with these fake electors, how that they were coming together, how the Trump campaign was supporting them or interested in what they were doing to try and block the transfer of power. And Chesbro flipped after he was charged with a crime in Georgia. He pleaded guilty. He started talking to prosecutors and then talked to prosecutors in Michigan, of which we at CNN were able to obtain the Audio, we were also able to see some emails he was on at the very end of the push to get the fake electors, and that is where this story uh, focuses. It is about how right before January 6th, January 4th, into the late hours of that night, January 5th, there was a very big concern of Chesbro and then as well as a lawyer with the Trump campaign and another man working with the Trump campaign and them. They were afraid that the ballots weren't going to make it into the hands of Mike Pence on time to support Donald Trump. And so they considered chartering a flight. They talked about that. They ultimately put people on planes to hand carry those ballots and get them couriered over to the Capitol building before the morning of January 6th so that they could try and get those fake electors there uh, on time because the mail was just not that reliable for them in those final moments. Here's Ken Chesbro explaining a little bit more.
9: This is like, yeah, so this is a high-level decision to get the Michigan and and Wisconsin votes there. And they, they had to enlist a... Uh, you know, uh, a U.S. senator to, to try to expedite it, to get it, uh, get it to uh, uh, Pence in time.
4: So really an illuminating scramble of what was happening to move those fake elector ballots for Trump into Washington, D.C. to help that plot on January 6th. Uh, Chesbro still believes that what he was doing was legal. Others are also distancing themselves from this effort. But it is something prosecutors are clearly hearing about.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Caitlin, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Joining us now, CNN senior political commentator, former congressman and member of the January 6th committee, Adam Kinzinger. Congressman, appreciate your time. Uh, I want to start with Maine, uh, which follows Colorado. What's your read on what we saw last night and what this means going forward? Yeah, I
24: mean, look, this is ultimately, again, all of these cases that's going to have to be adjudicated in the U.S. Supreme Court because we can debate what is the 14th Amendment. Does it cover Donald Trump? Does it not? There's really compelling cases on both sides, and the court's just going to have to make that decision. I I don't think we want to be, you know, Colorado's a little different that made it through to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court made a decision. Obviously, Maine will have to go that way. I I don't like the idea of, you know, a secretary of state, frankly, from a different party making a decision to keep a presidential candidate off a ballot. That opens a real Pandora's box. That said... I mean, she did her job. She, she, you know, made the best decision she could. It's going to have to work through the courts there. But I think no matter what happens here, the bottom line is the U.S. Supreme Court, like them or love them or hate them, whatever you think, they're going to be the ones that make decision on what the 14th Amendment means in this case.
2: So what if they don't make a full decision? And I ask this question because Eli Honig, our senior legal analyst, um, said this last night. I was talking to him about it this morning. He, He's not convinced that the Supreme Court is actually going to take up this issue of, what it means to engage in an insurrection, right? Because we're hearing some of the pushback being Donald Trump wasn't charged, uh, Donald Trump was not criminally convicted of an insurrection, so therefore this cannot apply. If they don't address that, I mean, major chaos could ensue.
24: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I mean, look, they're going to have to, and if they don't, I don't know what it actually looks like, what the result of, you know, not taking this up looks like, I mean, do you just have this patchwork of ballots? Do people have to write it? I mean, who knows? Or maybe there is some technicality they can say where whatever. But the reality is, look, I know the Supreme Court has hesitated to get into disputes between the legislative and executive branches, between states and federal government. But in this case, they have to do that. The whole point of the Supreme Court is to determine – what the laws are when there is basically different viewpoints of it. I mean, you you know, we have 300 some million people in this country and two parties that are very far apart. Obviously, you're going to have these disputes. So if they don't take these cases up, I think they're not following their job. So hopefully they do. And just, you know, people will say half the country is going to love what they say. half's going to hate it. But at least we'll have an answer at that point.
1: On the politics of this, we saw Trump's campaign respond saying, quote, Biden and the Democrats simply do not trust the American voter in a free and fair election. Look, I've I've spoken to Biden campaign folks about this. They hate this happening because they know it feeds directly into a narrative uh, that has been pushed politically. What do you think comes of this?
24: Yeah, I mean, look, it's the people that believe that when the Trump campaign says that are the same 30 percent that believe him when he says Vladimir Putin is a great guy. They're the same people that believe him when he says, you know, that like all his lies, literally a lie every day. So. I'm not worried about that kind of infecting the mainstream voter. But, you know, yeah, I, I think the reality is he's going to be able to now have a point to say, look, they're coming after me injustice, They're coming after me this way. But I, I, again, I just think the vast majority of people are going to understand that Donald Trump was a corrupt man. And they, they still may vote for him, unfortunately, based on, you know, economic indicators or something like that. But uh, I don't think there's anybody that hasn't had their mind made up about this. And so, you know, we'll see. Let's just keep in mind, you talk about not trusting the voters. This is the man that tried to overthrow the will of the voters and continues to say that he doesn't trust the results of an election. And, And that's to me saying he doesn't trust the voters. He doesn't trust anything. So we'll see what comes of that. But if I was the Biden campaign, I wouldn't lose too much sleep on that argument.
2: So speaking of uh, speaking of the events of a couple of years ago, um, we have new reporting, new exclusive reporting from our colleagues here at CNN, um, audio of Kenneth Chesbrough as he goes into more detail about this last minute scramble to try to get those uh, fake electors to Washington to make sure that they could get them to Mike Pence to hopefully carry out this plan. And there's new detail too on some of the lawmakers involved. As you learn more about this, and I know you know a heck of a lot based on your experience, just what's your reaction to more and more of this coming out at this point?
24: Yeah, I mean, it just piles on. Like, I, I felt like the January 6th committee, we had very compelling arguments in this case. I feel like we, we made a very compelling case. But I also knew that all we're doing is we were basically handing the baton to Jack Smith. Like, here's what we were able to find out. I think mean, this would hold up in court in and of itself. Now, you have all these different tools to get more information, and that's what he's doing now. And I mean, certainly, I wish we'd have had this information when we were when we went, you know to the public with our findings. But it makes me proud of what we've done on the committee because I think Jack Smith has a, I mean, the indications I'm seeing here is uh, it's a pretty open and shut case. and it's it's pretty, obviously criminal. It's clearly an attempt to overthrow an election. And so I'm sitting here saying I'm not somebody that loves the idea of going after the last administration, except in this case, we cannot be a country that allows an attempted coup to happen. As long as it fails, it's OK, because if it succeeds, then you just had a coup succeed. And it basically takes away any incentive for another you know, future president to not try to do the same thing.
1: While we have you, I do want to ask about what we saw overnight in Ukraine. We've spoken so often about both the U.S. support uh, and what it means, but also the conflict itself. Um, The scale of the Russian air assaults last night, the the missiles, was it something Ukrainians say they haven't seen since the start of the war? What do you make uh, of the, the tactical of the strategy that we're seeing play out from the Russian side right now?
24: Well, it's pure evil. This is a man who has has lost 350,000 troops in two years. He's lost 500 men a day. In five days, he has lost what the US lost in 20 years in Afghanistan, and we came home with our tail tucked between our legs. He is going to lose if Ukraine can hold out. The United States, the Republicans have got to give on the issue of Ukraine. The Democrats give on the border. They're not related, but give on the border. You need to do that anyway. This has got to get done. This will be the greatest self-owned embarrassment, abdication of our position as a superpower if we let Ukraine fall apart on this. This is absolutely a no-brainer. And by the way, the money we're giving to Ukraine, we're not driving over pallets of cash, as some people will have you believe. We're simply putting a value on our weapons that are going to time out anyway because we have to replace them. Otherwise, we just throw them in the junkyard we blow them up. We do whatever we had to do. Now we're letting Ukraine do it and we're going to replace our own weapons. Uh, Look, the Republicans have been lying to the American people about what our aid is. And the administration has got to do a much better job of selling this because I haven't seen I haven't seen Joe Biden sell this once in two weeks.
1: Yeah, it'll certainly be the debate the Congress is facing when they come back, the replacement arms. They're manufactured in the United States of America. Adam Kinzinger, appreciate your time, sir, as always. That's right. And coming up in just a few minutes, Maine Secretary of State Shanna will join us live to explain why she made the decision in Maine and the fallout from it.
2: Nikki Haley in damage control mode on the campaign trail after initially responding to a question about what caused the Civil War by not saying slavery. So what's the new answer?
1: And as the battle over the surge at the border grows, three mayors whose cities are taken in migrants are pleading for President Biden's help. The mayors of New York, Chicago, and Denver will all join us live.
4: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
2: GOP rivals Nikki Haley and Chris Christie set to host dueling events in New Hampshire this morning. And then later today, Haley headed back to Iowa. She's been trying to clarify and clean up her comments over the last 24 hours or so after a voter asked her a question about what the cause was for the Civil War.
14: What was the cause of the United States Civil War?
13: Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I
2: mean,
12: I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and
13: what people could and couldn't do.
14: 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery.
13: What do
2: you want me to say about slavery? CNN's even McKend is live in Concord, New Hampshire this morning. Um, so that obviously was really dominating her day yesterday in the Granite State. This is a critical moment for her there. She was gaining all that momentum in polling what are we
12: hearing this morning eva well good morning to you erica from rainy concord Uh, listen her rivals aren't making it easy but she is doing the best she can to move on from this she addressed this at a radio program she mentioned it during one campaign stop but didn't say much after that take a listen to how she's responding I'm from the South. Of course, you know it's about slavery. I guess if you grow up in the South, it's a given that it's about slavery. It was definitely a Democrat plant. So, New Hampshire voters that we speak to mostly seem to be satisfied by her uh, cleanup here. One man telling us that he felt like the question was intentionally posed to trip her up. Another woman telling us that. She's not focused on this. She's really focused on where Haley stands on a number of policy matters. Another woman telling us that she's proud to support Haley uh, in the primary and that she feels as though women are underestimated. So she is getting a lot of support here uh, on the ground. There was one tough question, though, that she did receive last night in Lebanon, a man suggesting that she really needed to be redeemed from this whole episode, and could she give a forthright answer on this question, if, if she doesn't win the nomination, would she consider uh, serving as Trump's uh, vice presidential pick? And she didn't outright deny that. She didn't say that she wouldn't. She only said something that she repeatedly often says on the trail, which is that she doesn't play for second place. But Haley will continue on the trail today. She's gonna be in Concord later this morning. We'll see if this comes up there. And then after, here in New Hampshire, she's going to head back to Iowa, Erica. Eva McKenna,
2: appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Joining us now is pollster and communication strategist Frank Luntz. Frank, we appreciate your time this morning. To to start with uh, the the kind of 24-hour cleanup clarification and then try to move on, Uh, it's tried and true. (laughs) Many a candidate, including those who have won races, have done it. Um, Was Nikki Haley successful in what you saw yesterday?
25: But we won't know the very fact that you and I are having this conversation right now, a day later, suggests that it's not been completely successful. But in the end, voters will determine what matters to them. And I can assure you without any doubt whatsoever that in New Hampshire, the cause of the Civil War is not the first, the second, or even the 10th most important issue. The challenge for Haley right now is that she has been gaining and gaining every single day. Donald Trump's lead in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, was so significant, but it begun to crumble over the last month or so because of uh, Nikki Haley's performances in the debates. So any time that's focused on anything but where she stands on the issues of today is damaging to her campaign, make no mistake, there are gonna be at least two debates between now and the New Hampshire vote, Those debates will be absolutely critical, and people will forget what we're talking about this morning.
2: In terms of where she stands, and this did come up at a DeSantis event, so important to point that out, but Republican South Carolina State Senator Josh Kimbrell was weighing in on this and where Nikki Haley does stand, not just on this issue, but on issues broadly. Take a listen.
26: Because if you get Nikki Haley, you're gonna get a lot of political
7: spin. And I say that as a South Carolinian, I have nothing personal against her. Uh, I, it's not a personal thing for me. She's a nice lady for me meet her, depending on which version
25: you meet.
2: Can she, can she? I'm not
25: surprised. I'm not surprised. This is where things get vicious. This is where they get personal, where everyone has a point of view and they're trying to bring people Mm -hmm. down. The much bigger question right now for Republicans is who is most likely to defeat President Biden. And what's critical for Republicans is whether anyone at this point in the campaign, because we're only 18 days from Iowa and uh, 26 days from New Hampshire, whether anyone has the ability to catch Donald Trump and whether they're truly viable in, uh, in, in the Republican contest. And what's your sense of that? You know, I've been polling and focus grouping right up to Christmas Eve. It's amazing to me that the former president continues to do as well as he's done with all these indictments, with all this criminality that's and the chaos that surrounds him. And the fact that Maine has now kicked him off their ballot. Make no mistake, I say this to your viewers very carefully, every knock on Donald Trump in the primary process makes him more likely, not less, to be the Republican nominee. And no president, no candidate for president has ever lost a nomination in modern history with the kind of lead that Donald Trump has. But no one has ever had the legality, the, the, the chaos, the, the, the court cases and the felonies that Donald Trump is facing. So at this point, Iowa looks like a slam dunk for Trump, very close to 50%. New Hampshire is much more up for grabs and everyone is talking about Nikki Haley. Chris Christie is also drawing 10, 12, 14% in the polls. And the candidate that seems to have disappeared in all of this is the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. If the opposition can coalesce around a single candidate, that gives Donald Trump a run for his money, but it hasn't happened yet. And so at this point, Trump is still the prohibitive favorite.
2: Frank Luntz, well, appreciate it, thank you.
25: Thank you.
1: More on that decision in Maine to kick Donald Trump off the presidential primary ballot. The person who made that decision, Maine Secretary of State, Jenna Ballos, joins us next.
2: Plus dozens of people running for their lives as huge waves, watch this video, pound the California coast. Derek Van Dam has the latest now on this danger today. Derek, still there.
10: Yeah, rogue waves, they're dangerous, unpredictable, and you know what, they can cause a lot of destruction and cause uh, people to get taken off guard very, very quickly. So what is a rogue wave? Well, it's when ground or ocean swell actually meets an opposing surface wave from a storm system off the Pacific coast in this particular case. What this does is they can dynamically kind of join together, rapidly shorten the wavelength between the waves. The result is a large rogue wave that can crash upon the shoreline, sweeping feet from underneath people, and of course be extremely dangerous for residents. Now we do have the potential for larger waves along the entire California coastline through the course of today, lasting right through Saturday morning. CNN This Morning, we'll be right back.
2: The decision from Maine secretary of state to remove Donald Trump from the Republican primary ballot is drawing harsh criticism and calls for an appeal. In statements to the Portland Press Herald, the GOP leader in the Maine House called it a sham decision and warned it will not stand legal scrutiny. The state's Republican Senate leader says the decision undermines democracy and Maine voters deserve a primary process that allows for each party to decide its own candidates. The Maine GOP has said it will appeal that decision. Here's what the party chairman told CNN last night.
0: She is kicked as a
14: serious hornet's nest. I've heard just in the last couple of hours from so many independents, Democrats
0: and Republicans alike, this isn't about Donald Trump. This is about our constitutional rights and the ability of the American people to elect into leadership the people that they choose.
2: And Maine Secretary of State, Shenna Bellows, joins us now. Good to have you with us this morning. I'm sure you had already seen and heard uh, much of that
3: criticism and more. How do you respond this morning? good morning thank you for having me i think it's really important that people understand the process Uh, as a general matter states uh, have the power to control their own ballots and in fact do under the constitution and Maine law specifically delegates to me as secretary of state a requirement to review the qualifications for any candidate running for office so for example Uh, Last week, the Superior Court found that my decision to bar Mr. Chris Christie from Maine's presidential primary ballot due to lack of signatures was lawful and correct. So my job, I qualify Mr. Trump for the ballot, uh, and under Maine law, any registered voter can bring a challenge to that qualification. In this case, there were three challenges, and I was required by law to hold a hearing, an administrative hearing, to review the evidence, hear testimony, Both sides were represented by counsel, Mr. Trump was represented by an attorney, and then I'm required to issue a decision. That's my obligation under the oath I swore to the Constitution.
2: In terms of the criticism that your decision takes away the right for voters to have their voice heard, do you believe that's a valid concern?
3: Again, my first and foremost obligation is my oath to uphold the Constitution and the rule of law. Now, different states are different. For example, our neighboring New Hampshire, there are more than a dozen candidates on the Democratic presidential ballot, but Mr. Joseph Biden is not on the Democratic presidential primary ballot in New Hampshire, and there are more than a dozen Republican candidates. In Maine, there are two candidates on the Democratic presidential primary ballot and less than a dozen Republican presidential candidates. So every state is different. My Obligation and duty. My sole consideration is my oath to uphold the Constitution.
2: As you note in laying out there how things do work in Maine, given the amount of pushback you've seen, though, to doing your job as it's laid out in the state Constitution, do you anticipate there could be a legislative challenge in the future to the duties of the Secretary of State in Maine?
3: So again with the process, this decision now goes to the superior court, and then can go to the Right. Maine but Supreme I mean Judicial specifically court with your
2: then- with your role, not in the way that this lays out Maine state law. But given the pushback that you're hearing, including from folks in your own state, who know what your role is and what the state constitution of Maine lays it out to be in the state, do you anticipate that there could be some sort of a legislative challenge to that role
3: or even to the state constitution? So the legislature can always change the laws. I would be surprised if they directed me to stop enforcing qualifications for office. Some have suggested, for example, that I can't enforce age or residency or citizenship qualifications or the 22nd Amendment. I don't think that I'm permitted to put an 18-year-old on the ballot or a non-citizen on the ballot. Uh, My job is to look at the qualifications and if those qualifications are challenged, to make a determination, but there's also a court process. Uh, The legislature, if they change that, I will absolutely adhere and follow the law.
2: Um, In your decision, you argue that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. You did hold a public hearing um, ahead of the decision. Um, It's interesting to note, Democratic Congressman from Maine, uh, Jared Golden, said in a statement in response to this decision, quote, until he's actually found guilty of of, of the crime of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot. Did that consideration
3: weigh on your decision or give you any pause? I reviewed Section 3 of the 14th Amendment very carefully and determined that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not say conviction. It says engage. And let's go back and keep in mind that the events of January 6, 2021 were unprecedented and tragic. This was an attack not only on the Capitol and the government officials, the former vice president, members of Congress, but an attack on the rule of law. And the weight of evidence that I reviewed indicated uh, that it was, in fact, an insurrection. And Mr. Trump engaged in that insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We are waiting to see if the Supreme Court will, in fact,
2: take up this Colorado case. Um, I know you mentioned the Colorado case in your decision. When you look at where things stand, there is a question our own senior legal analyst bringing this up. He doesn't believe that if the Supreme Court takes this up, that they will, in fact, uh, rule on what engaging in an insurrection means, whether there needs to be criminality with it. If they do not, are you concerned about the fallout?
3: I will always implement what the court decides. And This type of proceeding is not unusual as part of my duties in Maine under Maine election law. In 2022, for example, I uh, held a similar hearing uh, on the qualifications of a district attorney candidate, found him unqualified, that was appealed, the court upheld my ruling. Uh, I mentioned Mr. Chris Christie Mm -hmm. uh, just last week, um, a superior court finding that I had made the right decision in barring him from the ballot under Maine law but I will always uphold what the court does. And it's part of the job of being Secretary of State. Uh, should the US Supreme Court rule that Mr. Trump be on the ballot, I will in fact place him on the ballot. It's part of why I suspended the effect of my decision until the courts can act. Uh, so no ballots are being printed until that Superior Court uh, decision or Supreme Court decision uh, might come down. Uh, although we're looking at a very tight time frame. I was just gonna say it is a very tight timeline. Yes or no, do you think this
2: can get done in time?
3: I certainly hope so. OK,
2: Shannon, Bellis, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Well, the mayors
1: of major cities across the U.S. are asking the federal government for help as migrants are sent from the border to their states and cities. The mayors of New York, Denver and Chicago will join us next to discuss. As top White House officials and their Mexican counterparts are set to continue border talks next month in the U.S., big city Democratic mayors are stepping up their pleas, urgent pleas, for more federal help over the wave of migrants seeking asylum.
27: For many uh, months, we were able to keep the visualization of this crisis from hitting our streets, but we have reached a breaking point.
11: All of our cities have reached a point where we are either close to capacity we're nearly out of room.
16: We need more federal support uh, to be able to manage this amount of inflow. Uh, it will crush city budgets around the country.
1: Now, since last year, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has bused more than 80,000 migrants to cities, including Denver, New York, and Chicago. And let's take a look, a closer look, at the numbers in those cities. Take Denver, which has received more than 35,000 migrants. The mayor says the city will potentially spend 10% of its budget on migrant shelter and aid next year. New York City, which has received 161,000 migrants, estimates the influx will cost 12 billion over three years. And in Chicago, with 26,000 migrant arrivals, city officials say the shelter system has, quote, reached capacity. Joining us now are the mayors of those three cities, Mike Johnston, Brandon Johnson, and Eric Adams. Gentlemen, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Mayor Adams, I wanna start with you. You met with White House officials earlier this month. You called the meeting, quote, very productive. Has there been any follow-up? What do you need most right now from the federal government?
27: Well, first of all, I want to really commend uh, my colleagues, both the mayor of Denver and the mayor of Chicago, uh, because this national crisis uh, is really impacting, and it has the potential of destabilizing uh, the financial uh, obligations that we have in our cities. And the meeting with the White House, Uh, I think much more could be done and with all of our national leaders from a decompression strategy to making sure the cost of this is not falling on the laps of everyday taxpayers uh, in our cities. So it's not just about New York City. It is all of these cities that are being impacted from Brownsville, El Paso, Houston, uh, Chicago, New York, Denver. Uh, This is really an issue uh, that you're seeing play out on the streets of our cities.
1: Mayor Brandon Johnson, you know, we spoke to you, my colleague, Poppy Harlow, spoke to you a, a couple days ago about this issue as well. The words breaking point are consistently used both in border towns and uh, more in the in, uh, internal areas of the country right now, your guys' cities. What does that mean? Is it just a money thing? Is it a capacity thing? What does breaking point actually mean for people who want to understand this?
11: Yeah, what it means is, is that, you know, we, we have infrastructure in our local communities um, that are not designed um, to carry such a, uh, a burden. Um, local municipalities are not structured um, to be able to carry the weight of, of a crisis like this. And I've sent a, a delegation uh, to the border um, to see firsthand uh, what our bordering cities are experiencing. And what we have said repeatedly is that there has to be uh, better coordination. Um, and without a coordinated operation, um, this is going to crush um, local economies because there is a financial responsibility um, that we have all taken on. And look, the bottom line is this: for, for at least for for my experiences, is that we have a governor um, in Texas um, that is governing out of fear. And what we need right now, we need sound minds. And that's why I'm grateful uh, for the leadership of Mayor Eric Adams and the leadership of uh, Mayor Mike Johnston, uh, because we are working collectively together to be able to bring some structure around this crisis.
1: Mayor Johnston, what do you say, and you've laid out very clearly both financial assistance, expansion of work permits, uh, better entry plans. There are very specific things you have made clear are necessary at this point in time. But to Mayor Johnston's point, as cynical as it may be viewed, had Governor Abbott not done what he's done in terms of busing migrants to uh, interior cities, Would it be getting the attention that it's getting right now?
16: Yeah, I think the frustrating thing for us is we know this problem is solvable. Actually, for Americans who have lost hope, it's actually clear for us there is a path to solve it. Um, And that's why we need Congress to take action. I think the White House sees the same path to solve it, which is there's nothing more un-American than allowing someone to come to this country and pursue the American dream. And then once they get there, denying them the chance to work. Uh, What we need is everyone that gets paroled into this country should have the ability to work as soon as they enter. They should have federal dollars to help support them in the cities that they arrive in. And we should have a coordinated national plan for where those folks arrive. I mean, Mayor Johnson in Chicago talks powerfully about America knows how to do this. We did it when we helped relocate refugees from Ukraine. We did it when we relocated refugees from Afghanistan. We had a coordinated system. Everyone had work authorization and we had federal support uh, and that worked miraculously and beautifully. We know we can make it work here too. And that's what we want to see our Congress do. That's why we're pushing Congress to act on those things.
1: What you're referring to in terms of Ukraine and Afghanistan, those can be done unilaterally through executive action, if, if I'm correct, through the TPS system. Is that, is the administration falling short on that?
16: Well part of the challenge is we know we need federal resources also, and that's where I think the supplemental budget that the President has pushed is being held up in Congress right now. What, you know, the breaking point, as Mayor Johnson describes it for us, is when you're talking about ten percent of the budget to allocate for cities on this, that's unsustainable. When we have every single hotel room in the city full of uh, migrants that have arrived, that's unsustainable. And so the federal resources are what the Congress has held up. Along with that, Congress could uh, directly authorize the resources that are needed to accelerate that work authorization. Right now you come to America, you get an asylum claim, but that court date for your asylum claim is four years out right now because these judges don't have the capacity at the border to adjudicate those issues quickly. So we have someone waiting four years without the capacity to work for those four years. That's also unsustainable.
1: Mayor Adams, this week you signed an executive order requiring all charter bus companies to provide 32 hours of advance notice uh, of the arrival of busloads of migrants into the city. Do you have the, the kind of second order effects of that? Uh, I understand Mm -hmm. your rationale for doing it. You've laid it out very clearly. What is that going to mean in practice? And does this mean buses may be dropping people off outside of the city in New York?
27: Well, it's about uh, collaboration and uh, turning this disorder into order. We have to orderly run our cities. And I think... Uh, Mayor Johnson has stated how we're coming together, not only as the three mayors here, but also you're seeing governor of Massachusetts and mayors of Houston and Los Angeles and other uh, mayors across the entire country. Uh, we want to collaborate together. Uh, we know this is a national problem and one of the initiatives that we're doing is with that executive order. We're saying that between a certain period of time, you are allowed to drop off uh, migrants in the city, but you're going to do it at the location that we specify, so we don't overtax our resources, our manpower, and create a disorderly environment. I think the question you ask is so significant. Uh, what does breaking point looks like? Breaking point looks like um, having to cancel my police class, um, stopping some of my trash picks up. Uh, looking at some of my school programs that will have to be canceled, canceled some of my li- library hours, our resources that was going into our seniors and, uh, and uh, older adults. Um, every agency and delivery of service in my city uh, is going to be drastically impacted uh, by the actions of picking up the tab of $5 billion this fiscal year, $12 billion over three years that's coming out of a substantial amount of our budget. Uh,
1: Mayor Johnson, while I... No, this is a policy issue. This is a human issue. There's also very clearly a political element of this. Your city is the host of the Democratic National Convention in 2024. Are you concerned that that will make Chicago more of a target on the political side of things and stretch the resources of your city even further?
11: Well, look, Chicago is the greatest city in the entire world. And so I know uh, Denver and New York has already capitulated to that. So, you know, (laughs) look, it's clear since the, the DNC... Was um, confirmed that it would be in in my city. Uh, Governor Abbott um, has literally sent hundreds of buses um, to the city of Chicago. You know, at one point in the summer, we had. 25, 30 buses showing up every single day without any coordination or any notification. Um, the the previous administration uh, set up a policy where buses were being dropped off at police districts and put an incredible strain on our police department. I've since cleared all of our police districts. We've set up, you know, almost 30 shelters. We're educating 4,500 children, providing health care right on site, and it is very evident that you have um, a governor. Um, who is committed to recklessness and lawlessness. We've set up parameters a month ago asking the state of Texas to coordinate with our city to provide the type of structure um, and calm that is needed in this crisis, and he has circumvented that at every hand. In fact, he is now sending buses um, outside of the city of Chicago, in some instances 100 miles away, where people are being dropped off. They're being told that they are in the city of Chicago, literally dropped off Um, in the middle of nowhere. Um, I find that to be inhumane and unconscionable. And so clearly we understand that there are politics at play here. But as I've said repeatedly, as a country, we cannot allow one individual to sow seeds of discord um, and, and not be held responsible. Right. Look, sending airplanes to New York and Chicago without regulation is quite frankly is dangerous. So, you know, as a country, we're going to continue to come together. I'm grateful for the leadership of both of our mayors. I've had over a hundred mayors in the state of Illinois that we have brought together to provide the type of structure and calm that is needed in this crisis. But I want to make this very clear. Um, the international crisis that we are experiencing right now is being subsidized by local economies. That is not sustainable. And that's why we need Congress to actually have appropriations to make sure that what um, refugees from Ukraine receive, we have to ask our question, why aren't those same support services being provided for individuals who are coming from the continent of Africa and Central and South America? It's certainly a question Congress will have
1: to debate when they come back. Mayors Eric Adams, Mike Johnson, Brandon Johnson, Uh, I'm not going to confirm that there was an agreement when you said Chicago's the greatest (laughs) city in the world, but we'll have to get into that a little bit later. We appreciate your time, all three of you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Wise words from the guy who who recently moved to New York, Phil Mattingly. Uh, We are just days away now from a brand new year. So are Americans happy with how 2023 played out? Who better than to fill us in than our own Harry Enten? Breaking down the past year, looking ahead to 2024. It's going to be good.
1: All eyes will be on Times Square Sunday night. At least that's what New Yorkers want you to think. As we count down to 2024, this year there are concerns, in a serious matter, the Israel-Hamas war will inspire a lone wolf attack.
2: CNN's John Miller takes us inside the security preparations underway.
8: New Year's Eve in New York City. Security, always tight, has been increased this year. While officials stress there is no specific reporting regarding any threats, a joint threat assessment based on analysis from 10 law enforcement agencies warns, the Israel-Hamas conflict has created a heightened threat environment, therefore, the intelligence community remains concerned about lone offenders using online platforms to express threats of violence against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab communities, as well as committing simple, unsophisticated attacks that are difficult to detect in advance. The assessment, obtained by CNN, reminds police that massive live televised events remain an attractive target for foreign terrorist organizations, as well as domestic violent extremists. It's a threat stream that will be monitored minute to minute leading up to midnight New Year's Eve in multiple command posts from the NYPD's Joint Operations Center, to its Intelligence Bureau, to the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, gathered in an operations center in lower Manhattan. October 7th was something of a flashpoint. Um, the
11: uh, horrific attacks on Israel and the ongoing war and conflict that's happening
8: right now uh, is, 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 is certainly motivating and inspiring people to do uh, bad things. Last year, a 19-year-old man from Maine traveled to Times Square with an attack plan that investigators believe was inspired by online ISIS propaganda. New York City police say Trevor Bickford was shot by officers after he attacked three of them with a machete at a Times Square New Year's security checkpoint. Bickford has pleaded not guilty and is awaiting trial. The security package not just crowd control and traffic, but what they call the counter-terrorism overlay includes a network of cameras, NYPD counter-sniper teams and skyscrapers above, bomb detection canines moving around the perimeter, dogs that can pick up the whiff of explosives even moving through a crowd 100 feet away, radiation detectors worn by police on the street, and an especially equipped NYPD helicopter high above. Police are also focused on potential demonstrations. No justice, no justice. No peace. The war between Israel and Hamas has brought on protests in New York and clashes with police. When some protesters announced their intent to disrupt the lighting of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, the live televised event in Times Square is another potential target for disruption. We know what their tactics are. We're going to make some adjustments to so our tactics. Uh, no one's getting to that ball. I can put it to that way. But protests, and even disorder, is not what keeps the NYPD or the FBI up at night. Terrorism is. And while the officials say there is no specific credible threat on their radar, this year they are doing more than ever, they say, to ensure that. John Miller, CNN, New York.
2: All right. Some of you may be ready to say goodbye to 2023. Um, Some of you may be excited for 2024. What do the numbers tell us? only one man knows, CNN senior data analyst, Harry Anton here. Harry, how are the people feeling?
26: How are the people feeling? Well, for them, 2023, for you personally, was it a yield field with more happiness, 29%. Sadness, right there at 29%. Equally both, 42%. Of course, we're tossing 2023 out the window. Let's usher in 2024, thank God. Thinking about the year ahead for the world next year, are you more optimistic or pessimistic? Ow. This is a troubling trend. said they were more optimistic in 2018, 49% in 2021. Now it's just 40%. Pessimism takes the lead at 59%, way up from 37%. But guys, I have a reason for optimism. Because American workers who get a paid holiday, just 15% for New Year's Eve, but how about New Year's Day? 90% of us get a paid holiday. So you know what? There is some pessimism in the world, but at least we won't have to work, most of us, on New Year's Day. You know what makes me optimistic? What makes you optimistic, Phil? Harry's
1: face every day at oh. the end of the show.
26: Thank you. Oh, and let me just say, happy birthday to my mom. We're not going to reveal how old she is, but it's a great birthday. She birthed me. She grew me up. She's wonderful. Mwah. I love you so much. A big
1: 21st birthday. We
9: can't celebrate <laughs> with
1: you, Harry. Happy we love birthday. you, my friend. Happy New Year, buddy. And seeing a new central starts. Run at the clock right now. Yeah.
4: That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks
3: for listening.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.